my name is Christian, for those who don't know. Uh, back there, the one who was ministering today, that's my wife, Pastor Aaron. And we are the lead pastors of New Philadelphia Church. Uh, we are one church uh, consisting of three campuses. And so we don't see ourselves as three churches, uh, just one. And we have different church plants that represent our campuses. And right now we have two in Seoul and one right here in Busan. And it's actually been about two months since our last visit. And I haven't preached since April 1st when we started our uh, opening uh, service. And so for many of you, you guys have probably never seen me preach. Uh, others, you've seen me uh, or heard me over the podcast. How many of you guys have actually heard, you've heard me preach before? All right. Okay. All right. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, uh, I was debating on whether to preach a different message than one I prepared today, uh, only because I'm not sure if many of you guys, hey, make sure it's higher, all right. Uh, I'm not sure if ma- many of you guys will be able to digest my message today because it's a little bit connected to the systematic doctrine of the house, meaning that if you haven't been really connecting with the teachings of the house, uh, some of this revelation may go right past your heads. All right, and so I was kind of debating whether to preach this today or not, but I'm just going to go ahead and just preach it anyway, because I believe the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth, and he will teach you all things regarding the content of this message. All right, and so if you feel a little bit of indigestion, spiritual indigestion, don't worry, it's normal, because some of what I'm uh, teaching today uh, requires that you actually listen to some of my previous messages, but it's a common theme in... Uh, the house. Now, when I say house, I mean New Philadelphia Church. The word oikos is what is the Greek word translated into house in many of the literal translations. In the NIV, it translates oikos a lot of times as family. We are the oikos of God. The church is the family of God. Amen? Amen. Turn to your neighbor. Tell him we are the family of God. So a lot of times when I say house, I'm talking about our church. I'm talking about this house, this family. Now, a big theme for this house is this thing called sonship. Everybody say sonship. sonship. Last week, I started a series of sermons on spiritual sonship because what's happening is a lot of people from other churches in other cities are picking up on our podcast and they're listening in and they're picking up on this theme called spiritual sonship that we've been writing on for several years now. Uh, it's not commonly taught in the in many Western evangelical Protestant churches, uh, but it is something that um, a lot of spirit-filled churches are picking up on. They're teaching on it. And what's been happening is I, I'm meeting some of my seminary classmates. I'm meeting uh, some people, visitors that come to our church from Virginia, from you know, from Australia, wherever people who visit, and they ask me questions about spiritual sonship. And so I thought there was a need to just go ahead and teach a series on it and also to reveal to the rest of the house mm, how far we've gotten in terms of revelation regarding spiritual sonship. So last week at Hillside, which is our main campus, there's about 200 people worshiping there who are just wrapping up service right now. They got a message called Identity, Intimacy, Inheritance. Okay, so that's the first sermon in the series. The second message I preached a couple hours later at our Itaewon campus, where there's about 90 people worshiping each week. 
And that message was called, This is Your Inheritance. Actually, it was just one sermon. And what happened was, I've been trying to limit my sermons to 35 minutes. Most of the time, I've been preaching 70 to 90 minutes. Over, way over an hour. And so I've been trying to get in the habit of preaching uh, shorter messages. And so what I've been doing was, at Hillside, I asked everybody, uh, when we hit the 35-minute mark, I asked everybody to clap. And so the timekeeper will draw up their time card, and everybody just starts clapping at the 35-minute mark, and it forces me to stop. Okay. So what ended up happening was, I had one message. I couldn't finish it. So I went to the Itaewon campus, and instead of preaching the same message, I preached the third point of the original message. Or right, anyway, so there's those two messages. So uh, I encourage you to go and listen to these messages if this is uh, a revelation that you really want to look into. Because it, it is not just a bite-sized brownie that you can just chew on and get blessed on by today. It is a big feast of a meal that is going to take you several trips to really just digest everything. You know what I mean? So go listen to those messages if you're interested. Now, the vision of New Philadelphia Church... Is to raise up an army of mighty warriors. Now, that's our vision. But we're not just an army. We're also a family. We're the old cause of God. We're the house of God. We're the family of God. And thus, the paradigm of spiritual sonship has really helped our church in establishing New Philly as a family, first and foremost. And I think that's very important. Because in the kingdom of God, number one, one of the, one of the biggest priorities is on love. Amen? Amen? It's on relationship. The biggest priority in the kingdom of God is not just on organizing missions conferences or even doing missions and evangelism, although those things are very important. What is the first command that Jesus uh, gives us? It's to love the Lord your God. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? In the kingdom of God, it's always relationship. It's always relational over functional. Function is very important, but not at the cost of relationship. And so this, these teachings on spiritual sonship is really causing, especially westernized, evangelical, Protestant churches to get back to the relational paradigm of the kingdom and not just to, the, uh, to teaching the right doctrine and, and functioning but to get back to the relationships. And so these teachings have been really helpful for our church in getting back to that. How, am I, how much time do I have? You guys have a clock in here? You need to give me a clock. I'm going to go for like two hours. <laughs> Is there a clock? Is something I can look at? 30 it's been 30 minutes already? <laughs> okay, all right. I'm not kidding. I got that. I got that. I got that um, Apostle Paul super long sermon anointing. You know, in the Bible and book of Acts, it says uh, the Apostle Paul preached for so long into the wee hours of the morning that this young dude who was hanging out on the windowsill, he fell asleep and he fell out the, like, the, whatever, fifth floor story, uh, not fifth floor, maybe second story, and he died. And that will jack up your sermon. Somebody dies during your sermon, I mean, that will jack everything up. So he went downstairs and he, he sprawled his body over the, uh, the dead kid and the, and the Lord raised him back to life. Or maybe he didn't really die. Anyway, he woke up, and, uh, and the Apostle Paul was like, oh, man, I need to work on shortening my sermons. Okay, I don't know if that's what he thought, but uh, I'm trying to shorten my sermons for in love to all of you. <laughs> okay, 
Uh, very quick, let me summarize some of what I touched upon last week, just so that you guys aren't completely lost in my message today. Uh, I talked about last week how the Word of God tells us in Galatians 3.26 that regardless of gender, we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.14 says that those who are led by the Spirit of God are also sons of God. The Greek is the huios, the huion, huios of God. Now, I preach that through sonship, God gives us a strong sense of identity, a wonderful intimacy within a covenant community, and a rich inheritance. Now, turn up my mic a little bit. Now, since most Protestant church leaders have forsaken or they have no revelation of the concept of spiritual sonship, the rest of the church members, they suffer a lot of times. And let me give you some of these symptoms. Church members often struggle with their identity uh, in many evangelical churches today. Uh, they also feel no safety by which they can experience a deep intimacy with God and with each other. Unfortunately, that's one of the symptoms that we see. Uh, a lot of times, that's because there's a lot of gossip as well. There's no accountability to live by God's word. So a lot of times, there's a lot, all kinds of foolish things happening in the church. Uh, actually, a church can be a perfect place for even sexual predators to come and, and prey on the young women or prey on even, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, could be, it could be a place that lacks safety, churches. Um, also, uh, the church can have the right dogma, the right doctrine. But a lot of times, many churches don't have a rich inheritance that they pass down from one generation to another. Let's face it, right? Many denominations are short-lived. A lot of the fire, the revival of denominations, it only lasts really one and one and a half generations. It's sad. You know, John Wesley, father of the Methodist denomination, you know, uh, he led amazing revival services through Europe, through America. And during his revival services, the power of God would just fall upon the place. People were literally physically shake because the power of God was so strong. He would preach and just people would just get saved. I mean, there was the fire revival upon the Methodist movement. But shortly after John Wesley passed away and his followers passed away, the Methodist denomination, that fire revival, it just kind of died out. One big reason I believe it died out is not because they didn't have the methods. They, they were called the Methodists. All right, They're the master of those methods. Not because they didn't have the right doctrine. I mean, they were really devoted. They knew all the creeds and doctrines. It's because there was a lack of relationship by which there should have been a generational transfer from one generation to another. Even the habits, the way of life of the spiritual mature uh, leaders, that needed to be passed down to the younger generation. But without a paradigm of spiritual sonship, without a relational paradigm, that didn't happen. And so by the next generation, Methodist church, Methodist denomination uh, lost that fire and eventually it just became a denominational kind of church. Now, there's a lot of good Methodist church out there, but they're not, they don't have quite the meetings that John Wesley had when he was around. Without a generational transfer happening through spiritual sons... Each generation has to discover for themselves what the previous generation learned on their own. There's no inheritance that is being given. Inheritance 
it's, 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 it's something that you don't earn. It's something you get for free. It really is a beautiful picture of the grace of God. I mean, why should each generation be punished with having to find out the hard way everything that the previous generation had to learn the hard way? I mean, if you're a loving father, wouldn't you want to give your son? I mean, if you're a baseball player and, you, and you're a professional baseball player and you watch and you, you realize that your 12-year-old son has baseball skills and baseball potential, what are you going to be like? Well, son, I, I ain't going to teach you nothing. You just find out the hard way, just like your papa. I didn't have nobody to teach me baseball. I didn't have nobody to play catch with. I used to just play with the wall. You're going to have to play with the wall as well. I mean, what kind of good, would a good father do that? No, a good father will teach his son everything he knows. And in this, in the kingdom of God, in the, in churches and spiritual movements, that needs to be happening as well. So this is what sonship really renews. Uh, it brings in the concept of inheritance again. It brings in that relational paradigm to, to local churches. So I believe this is a very revolutionary concept that's been lost that God is, once again, restoring to the body of Christ. All right? Okay. That's my summary of last week's message. How many, how many minutes I got? All right. Okay. Now, uh, today I'm going to talk about a key concept that's essential to spiritual sonship. And this concept is called spiritual fatherhood. Everybody say spiritual fatherhood. I, I may or may not go 35 minutes. I might go longer. If you guys are with me, I go a little bit longer, but not too much longer. All right. Am I okay? Is that okay? Is that a good agreement? All right. Some of y'all in the back, are y'all brand new? Cause I don't want to shock you with like a long message on your first Sunday. Okay. No. Okay. You guys have been here before. All right. How long was the message last week? 40, 40 minutes. All right. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm talking about time. All right. Let's get back to this. All right. Um, I'm going to talk about spiritual fatherhood. Really quickly, let me talk about the Jewish concept of spiritual fatherhood. In the Jewish culture, there was this concept in the rabbi-student system. Uh, a lot of times, um, uh, the Apostle Paul quoted his rabbi. It was, uh, I think it was Gamaliel. Uh, uh, was like a Pharisaic you know, leader. Um, there was this rabbi thing that Jesus himself, he took upon. Why, what did his disciples a lot of times call him? Teacher, which is rabbi, right? Rabboni, right? Um, and in that Jewish culture, it was, a, it was a concept of like spiritual fatherhood and sonship. Everything that the rabbi learned, he would uh, pass down to his students. And those students, they were required in a very systematic way to go through all of the teachings. Very devoted. They would go through all the teachings. So uh, once, once the rabbi retired... All the students would have the rabbi's teachings. They would know it inside and out. They would have that rabbi's prayer life, fasting life. They would inherit all of that because they're so devoted to their rabbi. So in Jewish culture, there was this kind of concept already. Now, after Christ, later on in church history, Catholics also, con it was a concept uh, that the early church adopted and had, spiritual fatherhood and sonship. And the Catholics, they continue to use it, but what, personally, I believe they over-institutionalized it. And so now we have remnants of that today. Because what do uh, Catholics call the priests? A lot of times they call them father. 
Father, I have sinned. How have you sinned? You know, I've looked at some bad stuff. All right, then, you know, go and do these things and let your sins be absolved, right? Um, so the Catholic Church kept it, but they kind of over-institutionalized it. And it lacked that meaningful spiritual uh, meaning, <laughs> meaningful spiritual meaning that the early church knew about. Now, what happened was when the reformers came about, they rejected this concept, concept and they threw it out altogether. It was this overcompensation because they were so focused and obsessed with the restoration of truth. Why? Because truth was being so like hidden and so corrupt, like truth was needed to be restored. So the reformers were focused on the restoration of truth. And so their primary focus was on passing down correct doctrine, which was very important at that time. And so in the meantime, they just kind of threw away this whole concept of spiritual fatherhood and sonship. And because the emphasis was on the restoration of truth, and they tried to pass down doctrine and truth and teachings, not through relationships, they decided to pass it down through creeds and confessions. Now, creeds and confessions can give a person correct doctrine, but let me tell you something, it cannot establish somebody in the spirit of sonship. It just can't do it. A movement based on creeds and confessions and not on relationships and trust is very vulnerable to divisions and factions. So, therefore, although the reformers never desired or planned on denominational splits, it was very inevitable because of the nature of the movement. This is all, by the way, Pastor Christian Lee's interpretation of church history, all right? <laughs> you can go check for yourself, all right? Because I, I, church history, I've studied it last three semesters, and it's kind of fresh in my mind. I'm just trying to process everything with you. Um, where am I? A spiritual movement of creeds and confessions divorced from spiritual fatherhood and sonship is vulnerable at every new generation to the opinions of every knucklehead that wants to speak up. And so it doesn't even have to be like a person who has a good character and has a good reputation. It's anybody who speaks up. Every new generation is going to be vulnerable to the attacks of those people that speak up. And each new generation who has no sonship to the previous generation, they have to be convinced for themselves about what is correct doctrine. And a lot of times in their effort to get correct doctrine... Their attitude to the rest of the body of Christ is not one of unity. It's one more of suspicion. It's one more of, well, what's your, what are the creeds that you confess? What are the confessions that you believe? And if they don't believe the same thing, they say, all right, well, I don't know about, I don't know if we can do something together. I don't know if we can eat together. You know what I mean? Do you understand kind of the vulnerability that is created by the nature of the reformers movement? And unfortunately, the Protestant Reformation has been the the father and mother of many pseudo-Christian cults because it had rejected the relational paradigm of spiritual fatherhood and sonship. The only thing that brings together Protestants uh, today, a lot of times they are functions. 
like evangelism or missions uh, conferences. Think about that. Um, to this day, Protestants are a lot of times are very quiet. They're very divided and not united. And that's because they lack that relational aspect that was lost through uh, rejecting spiritual fatherhood and sonship. All right, very good. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 14 to 17. And I'm going to read in the ESV. First Corinthians chapter four, fourteen to seventeen. All right. Have you come to New Philly here? I want to encourage everybody. Please bring your Bible. Bring. Uh, don't feel. Don't feel bad right now if you don't have your Bible. I'm just want to encourage you for the future. Please bring your Bible. I personally like it that you bring your own physical Bible and you read the pages, the physical pages, so that you know how to reference your own Bible. All right. iPhones are great and everything. But not here, all right? You bring your Bible here. You need to bring your sword. Okay, anyway, let's go. First Corinthians chapter 4. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, verse 14, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, Be imitators of me. He doesn't say be imitators of Christ. Oh, that sounds like the correct answer. Apostle Paul says be imitators of me. Your spiritual father. Be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. All right. Now, although our sonship primarily is direct, directly related to God himself, listen to me here, right? A major way in which the spiritual sonship that we enjoy with God, a major way in which we experience sonship is through a spiritual authority that God has appointed in your life. Let me say that again. Although our sonship is directly related to God himself, a major way in which we experience this sonship is through a spiritual leader, a spiritual authority that God has appointed over you. So some people think it's the person who led you to Christ, but this is not always so. The person who led me to Christ was this uh, female Chondosanim who uh, was teaching my vacation Bible school back in Philadelphia when I grew up in Philly. And uh, she led me to Christ one summer as a fourth grader, and I never saw her again. All right. So she obviously doesn't function as my spiritual father, right? I don't know. How many many of y'all still keep in touch with people who led you to Christ? I mean, it could have even been a stranger on the beach, you know? I mean, just because they led you to Christ, you don't follow that person all around now and say, you know, I'm your spiritual child now. You got to teach me, right? You don't always do that, right? So it's not always the case. Uh, now, uh, I used to be part of Campus Crusade for Christ for seven years. I was part of full-time staff. Um, I was volunteer staff for two years. I was a student leader four years. So I was with this campus ministry for almost 13 years. Now, in this campus ministry, we have small groups. And our small groups are called, in Korean, it's called Sun Moim. Sun Moim. 
And the leaders are called Sun Zhang, and the members are called Sun Wan. And some of the Sun Wans, the members, would sometimes call their Sun Zhang Amma or Appa. Right? But this was not a manifestation of spiritual sonship. Okay? Rather, it was simply an affectionate term that small group members used in the Campus Crusade ministry. Now, you might have been part of other ministries where they used those terms, like mama or papa or things like that. I don't know if you ever did. Most people haven't. Okay. But it's not whether you have the institutionalized or the label of spiritual sonship. It is do you have the spirit of it? Is there a meaningful application of, the spiritual, uh, of a biblical spiritual sonship being applied in your ministry and in your life? Okay. So right now I'm going to ask a very practical question. How do we as individuals identify our spiritual father? How do you identify your spiritual father? I'm going to give you two tips to finding your spiritual father. Number one. You identify your spiritual father through spiritual teachings. Okay, so let me explain. You identify your spiritual father by finding that pastor, leader, teacher, author, I don't know, a spiritual leader that teaches a systematic doctrine that you bear witness with, that you have peace with, that you vibe with, and you just like, yeah, these teachings, I'm down with it. Are you guys feel me? Okay. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting so ghetto. Some of you guys don't look like you will understand. I grew up in the urban, I grew up in, on the, in inner city Philadelphia. So there's a little bit of me that I can't, seem to remove I'm not trying to be fake I'm not trying to be black all right this is just me all right have you watched Fresh Prince of Bel-Air all right that's all Philly right there okay all right, anyway all right um uh spiritual fathers I believe they are gifted men and women of God that God appoints that God calls in his timing to steward a particular vision on the earth for his glory. Okay? So spiritual fathers, a lot of times, they're very mature sons who are gifted. A spiritual father uh, is a very gifted person. If a person is not gifted, you don't want to go calling them spiritual, your spiritual father. If they're not gifted, you're probably not going to be comfortable with every message they preach. Now, you don't have to be comfortable with every message your spiritual father preaches. All right, but you should be able to vibe with it. You should be down with it. Okay? Don't worry. Pastor Lydia, she laughs at everything. Don't worry. You're not missing out on any jokes. Okay? <laughs> she usually just laughs at everything. Don't mind her. Uh, so you got to ask yourself, am I good with this person's doctrine? Am I good with this person's teachings? Do I feel at peace when they preach, when they pray, when they prophesy? A spiritual father is a person through which... You experience God in a real and powerful way, consistently. That person, that's how you find your spiritual father. You hear what I'm saying? 
Now, the difference between a mentor and a, uh, a spiritual father is a spiritual father functions as the primary source from which you receive preaching and teaching. So you can have a lot of mentors in your life, a lot of different people that you admire, a lot of different books that you read, right? But the question is, where do you get your primary source of teaching and preaching? Okay, That primary source, that's your spiritual father. Okay, So you identify your spiritual father through the spiritual teachings. Now, just stay with me, all right? Things are going to make real. I'm going to do some examples right now. Just stay with me, all right? Now, uh, for spiritual, now, once you identify somebody, you're like, man, their teachings right there. That's, I'm down with it. Um, that's like the source. I read a lot of books, but man, this person, I, I really want to listen to all his sermons. I really want to uh, hear what this person is about. And I can really be devoted to this. Okay? Now, now think about the Apostle Paul. He was a spiritual father in the early church. He is such a powerful spiritual father, he continues to bless the body of Christ. 2,000 years later. That's a powerful, gifted man. Now, the Apostle Paul, he taught his teachings, and people were so devoted to his teachings that there were so many thousands of copies that eventually it actually became canonized in the Bible. It got included in the Bible. Okay? So that tells you the level of devotion that Paul's spiritual sons had to his teaching. And I believe, really, Paul carried the concept of spiritual father and sonship, the strongest in the early church. All right. Now, once you identify this person, it doesn't end there. That doesn't mean that person is your spiritual father. Let's say, for example, you like John Piper. So you listen to all of Piper's sermons, you read all of Piper's books, and you're like, Piper is my spiritual father. Okay? Just because you say that doesn't make Piper your spiritual father. Number two, for spiritual sonship to be fully established with a spiritual father, it is incomplete until there is a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship. Everybody say covenant relationship. This means that the relationship that you have with your spiritual father is not a fickle one in which you just go in and out whenever you want. It's one that you are staying. You're committed to it. And it's a relationship built on trust. So if you love a particular author or preacher, but you have no covenant relationship with that leader, you are not yet walking in the spirit of sonship. You can read all the books, listen to all the sermons, go to all the conferences. But if you have no covenant relationship with him, you're just, you're not a son, you're simply a fan. You're no different than a girl that likes Justin Bieber. You can have all these imaginary conversations with Bieber, but the only time Bieber talks back to you is at a concert where he says, I love y'all. That's the extent of your dialogue. That's the extent of your relationship. Okay. If you have no common relationship with your spiritual father, you're not really in sonship yet. Now, the reason why covenant relationship is essential to spiritual sonship is because by definition... To be a son of the Most High God means that you're adopted into a family. And it is a family full of brothers and sisters, whether you like it or not. God does not have a one-child policy. 
like China. Okay? There should be no Christian that ever says, I'm an only child in the kingdom of God. Such a thing does not exist. You might have gotten burned by your brothers and sisters. That gives you no justification for you to walk away from them. Doesn't give you a justification for you to live as a lone ranger Christian for the rest of your life. God's family, the church, never consists of a one-child home. If you think about it, a church really isn't a church until a multitude of Christians come together to build a covenant community. You sitting at home and watching Joel Olstein on TV, that is not church. Amen? I mean, you can worship God on that Sunday because you can't make it out to a local church service. That's fine. But if that is your permanent way of worshiping God, you got no concept of church whatsoever. The concept of church, by definition, is plural. There's a family that when you get adopted into God's family, there's a, there's a multitude of brothers and sisters that you, that you get adopted into. Now, so... If you are a big fan of some wonderful pastor or author, let's say Rick Warren, Mark Driscoll, or maybe it's a dead author, Charles Spurgeon. I'm telling you, there are people like that on the internet. Uh, I love Charles Spurgeon, by the way. Right, if, you, if you really love Charles Spurgeon, I love you. Okay. Uh, John Calvin or John Wesley. You're, you're going to be a big fan of all these wonderful leaders, but if you have no covenant relationship with this pastor or author, you are not a son. You are just a loner. No one is keeping your interpretations of their teachings accountable. Who's to say you're even thinking about and interpreting those things with a sound mind? You have no relationship with anybody else in the body of Christ. And do you know what society calls a natural child who doesn't belong to a family? We call them an orphan. And right now, there are too many knowledge-filled, self-righteous orphans in the body of Christ that has no accountability, no love, because they don't ever learn to get along with people in a long-term way, and they have no local church that they belong to. And I'm telling you right now, you can, you can be devoted to all of Piper's sermons, but if you don't have covenant relationship with the body of Christ, if you don't have covenant relationship with a spiritual leader, that's not the spirit of sonship. That's just the counterfeit spirit that the postmodern age has been dealing to our young people. Where you get to pick and choose whatever you want. That's not the spirit of, spirit of God. That's the postmodern spirit. So, how do you identify your spiritual father? First, you check the teachings. Second, if you really like the teachings, you enter into a covenant relationship with that spiritual father. Those are the first two steps you can take toward being established in spiritual fatherhood and sonship with a gifted uh, man of God in the body of Christ. All right. Now, that's, that's the first part of my message. Now that I only have two minutes, let me see what I can get through with my rest of the message. All right. Here we go. It's very important. Uh, by the way, all of uh, the two campuses at, in Seoul, all 300 people are going to listen to this message too. So uh, I'm preaching to y'all, but I'm also preaching to them right now. Okay. Uh, now, when I talk about a spiritual father, 
Uh, by the way, I'm including both the concept of spiritual mother and father. Now, some houses, some churches, they're blessed with both. Now, here at New Philly, we're blessed with both. So, hallelujah. Okay, I'm, I'm so glad that, that uh, I, I'm not the only one uh, leading it. I think a good, healthy family should have a mother and a father, right? Anyway, so we, we, we're blessed with that. So, when I say spiritual father from, from now on, I am including both the spiritual mother and father when they are available. When they're, when they, when they're there, okay? Now, I'm going to talk about three functions of a spiritual father for individuals. Now, in the future, I will preach the function of a spiritual father for the house. That's different. For example, for the house, the spiritual father has to steward the vision, right? I'm telling you right now, a, a group of Presbyterian elders cannot steward a vision because vision doesn't come democratically. If you look through the pattern in the Bible, God always deals with a set man. He gives the vision to a set man. You know what I mean? And then he charges that man and keeps that man accountable to be faithful to the vision he gives him. It's never like God is like, I'm giving my vision to ten people. And I've given one-tenth to all of them. And I want y'all to get together and discuss and figure out what that big vision is. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I want y'all to vote and the majority will win which vision you're going to go with. Which city are you going to do a church plan in next, right? Is it going to be Tejun? Is it going to be um, Jeju? Is it going to be Tokyo, right? I want y'all to get together and vote on that. Now, look, I'm all for getting input. In the counsel of many, you prosper. He who doesn't listen to counsel is like a fool. I ain't going to be no fool. Now, I will listen to the counsel of my mature leaders. But when it, come, when it comes down to it, when it comes down to it, I know God's going to hold me accountable for the vision. So I better get it right. So I can get all their input. I can consider all their input. But I'm not going to take the majority vote. I'm going to come into my prayer closet alone with God. And I'm going to be like, God, is this you? They voted to go to Dejan. But Lord... Dejan's so much easier. Lord, just let me, send me to Dejan. Dejan's just so closer. Dejan, there are people that want to go to Dejan. <laughs> Tokyo looks so hard, Lord. Lord, give us Dejan. And the Lord says, I want to give you Tokyo. Okay? Then what do I do? I got, I got, I got throw away the, throw away the majority vote and I go with Tokyo. You know, you hear what I'm saying? How do I get into that? All right, yeah. So that's the function of a spiritual father for the house. So I will preach that in the future. Let me talk about three functions of a spiritual father for the individual. Okay. Number one, discipleship. God establishes and disciples his sons through a earthly spiritual father. And he does it through them to full maturity. The goal is always full maturity. If you look at Colossians chapter one, I don't have time to look at it. So I'm going to go through it. Verse 24 to 29, in there it says, Paul says, I became a minister of the stewardship of God to make known the word of God, to make the word of God fully known. So what the Apostle Paul is pretty much saying is, God appointed me on earth to reveal the mysteries of God, to reveal the doctrines of God, to make the knowledge of God fully known to the church. He understood that as his function. And what I'm saying is, to today, God still uses gifted men to unpack the Word of God for us. You know, Satan uses gifted men 
also to unpack the Word of God. They're the ones who, uh, who go off and they, they, they gather families in some compound in Waco, Texas. And, you know, and then when the government raids the compound, they, they all drink cyanide and they kill themselves. You know? There's a, there's a, Satan uses men also to unpack the Word of God. But we've got to understand, God uses still men to unpack and reveal the mysteries of God. I mean, you got, whatever doctrine you got in your head right now, you got it from somebody. I don't care even if you're not a Christian, you still, you're believing something. Whether it's Nietzsche, or whether it's Pastor Christian. And by the way, if I ever got in a fight with Nietzsche, man, I would, I mean, not a physical fight, I mean like, anyway, I don't know why I'm getting to that. Um, discipleship, alright? Uh, later on, the Apostle Paul says in First Corinthians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29 says, To make known the, the word of God, to, to make word of God fully known, that we may present everyone mature in Christ, for to this I labor. So it was very clear in Paul's mind. My goal is to unpack the word of God, disciple the church to bring them to full maturity. So as the father of New Philadelphia Church, that's my goal. That's my goal. My goal is not to babysit little babies for 25 years. If you don't mature, I will hug you and keep <laughs> discipling you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if you're at New Philadelphia Church for a long time, you should grow. If you're not growing, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. There's probably some sin issues we need to confront, we need to talk to you about, bring some healing, deliverance, get you free from some bondage, and then let you be free so you can really live by the Word of God and mature. The Word of God is always bringing you to maturity. All right, so first thing is discipleship. Second, the function of a spiritual father to individuals is to manifest the love of God the Father. Now, we can experience the love of God the Father during a worship song, you know? I mean, some Sundays, you just sing through those songs. But other Sundays, you might be singing, and all of a sudden, you just start crying. And you just feel the love of God. Okay? And that's, a, that's the grace of God. We can really experience the love of God in that way. But you know, another way you can experience the love of God? Is through people. Come on now. If all y'all were stone cold and apathetic... It will be very hard for me to believe in the love of God. You know what I mean? If all I did was preach good messages, but when you talk to me in person, I'm like stone cold and apathetic, you would, you would have a hard time believing in the word of God, uh, the love of God. You would have a hard time experiencing the love of God. Right? So one time over at Itaewon campus, right? Actually, I did this several times. Let me just point out one time. One time there's this one uh, new girl named Susie, right? She had been at the church for a few months. And one Sunday, I just picked her out of the crowd. And I said, Susie, come here. Right? And Susie came forward. And I'm just praying for Susie. Right? And the Holy Spirit just came upon her really powerfully. And Susie just started crying. She started shaking. And I just felt the love of God, love of God come upon me. And the, I just heard the, the voice of the Father say, I want you to reveal my love to her. Just give her a hug. So I just hugged her like this. She's kind of short. So she was like right here on my chest. I just hugged her like this. 
and she just broke. I mean, she went from crying to crying. And she just held me and she was just crying and crying and crying and wouldn't let me go. She just kept on crying. And so we just singing the closing song. She's still crying. But after that Sunday, there was a major shift in her countenance, in her attitude toward the church. It was completely different. Through that hug, she experienced such a revelation of God the Father. She experienced the love of God so powerfully. She got set free from all these insecurities she had. God, you, one second function of a spiritual father for individuals is to manifest his love. So next time I want to give you a hug, don't reject my love. Don't reject my hug. You never know how powerful a hug from Pastor Christian and Aaron is going to do. Set you free with that hug. All right. Uh, and third is discipline. Function of a spiritual father for individuals is to bring discipline. Hebrews 12.6 says the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. Same themes are talked about in Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do you know how God brings his discipline into your life? When you're part of a covenant community, that discipline comes through the spiritual father. You know, God can actually bring direct discipline. I don't know what direct discipline will look like. Maybe it's lightning will just come, poof, and just like strike right next to your foot. And the Lord's just like, I am God, stop sinning, right? I mean, God could discipline you like directly like that. I don't know, like some, or some crazy uh, incident in your life, you know, family drama. I mean, he can, he can bring discipline directly. But when he brings it through a spiritual father, it's a lot nicer. It might sting a little bit, but it's a little nicer. And that's what the Lord does. He uses spiritual father, fathers to bring discipline for his sons so that they may not go wayward. Paul understood this. And he, would dis- he practiced disciplining the churches that he fathered. He would rebuke them for a small offering. That's discipline. You know, it's not like, hey, y'all, y'all didn't give that much last time. I want to encourage you. Please give a little more because there's a lot of poor and needy people in the Jerusalem church. I need y'all to give a little more. I want to encourage you. Can you please give a little more? Okay. Now he didn't do that. He wrote and he spoke and he said, what is this? (laughs) This is a disgrace. And he brought the hammer. He brought the rebuke. He brought the discipline. Right? In order for the church to continue to grow mature and also to turn away from foolish ways. You know, when you don't respond to the discipline of your pastor, you don't dis- respond to the discipline of a spiritual father, um, depending on certain sins, but when there's really open and blatant sin, the church can also practice something called church discipline. Now, the irony of the phrase church discipline is that you don't, once you receive church discipline, you don't actually receive church discipline. 
when you receive church discipline, what you're getting set up to receive is the direct discipline of God. Because once you get excommunicated from a covenant community, you are no longer under the covering and grace of that church. You know, it is a scary, fearful thing for a person to be excommunicated from a church, to, to be disciplined out of a church. And Apostle Paul talks about it. Remove that immoral brother from among you. Hand that man over to Satan. I mean, Paul, it is clear in his mind, church discipline was something that you have to practice when people don't repent, when people don't respond. And the irony is, when you get church discipline, you don't get church discipline. You're about to get God's direct discipline because you're no longer under the covering of the church. That is a scary place to be. You know what's better? Just receive the rebukes you get from your spiritual father. They're just a lot more nicer than getting a direct rebuke from God. So three things. Discipleship, love, and discipline. These are the functions of a spiritual father for individuals, for the sons that are in the body of Christ. Now, I want to say that when there is a house of many sons, the spiritual father cannot function in these ways for everybody directly. And so there's two logical ways in which the spiritual father continues to cover everybody. And that is these three things, these three functions, they are applied either directly or delegated. You guys feel me? So I've delegated authority to Pastor Caleb and Mina to function in these three ways on my behalf because I can't be here every Sunday. I'm still the spiritual father of this church. But as mature sons, I've appointed them. I've delegated these functions to them. And they continue to, to, to serve you in these ways. You know what I mean? So it's either direct or delegated. So here's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say, don't come up to me for this, like personal discipleship all of a sudden after this sermon. All right? Because uh, it is impossible for me to directly disciple everybody. Okay? But I can do it through delegation. And in fact, I try to cover the entire house through leaders that I've appointed. So up in the hillside, we have like 60 small group leaders. And they cover almost 200 people. And that's through delegated uh, functions of the spiritual father. You guys feel me, right? No. Very good. Very good. Oh, I got it all. All right. Very good. Very good. Okay. So that's, that's my teaching for today is uh, uh, the functions of a spiritual father to sons, to individuals. So in the future, I'll continue to teach on this series. Um, hey, let me just close us in a prayer. Close us in a prayer. Father, I just thank you for each and every person in this room. And Lord, I just pray that, Father, no matter where each person is in their spiritual walk, 
I pray that, Father, that they will be established in the spirit of sonship. That they will no longer walk about from house to house like an orphan. Trying to figure out where they belong. But that you will lead them. Clearly, you will lead them. To the house that they belong to. And even for future aspiring pastors and ministers and missionaries. They also will not have to feel like they have to shepherd their own soul for the rest of their lives. They won't have to shepherd themselves. But they can have spiritual, a spiritual father that can speak into their marriage, speak into their ministry. Continually speak into their lives so they can come to full maturity. So they can have healthy and more fruitful ministries. Father, I pray that you will place each one of your sons and daughters into a covenant relationship of fatherhood and sonship where they can experience your grace in abounding measure. We want to get rid of and we reject the postmodern spirit that tells each and every Christian, you decide for yourself, you figure it out all on your own, you pick and choose what you like, everything's relative. We reject that spirit. That is not the spirit of God. The Word of God says in Romans 8 that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And as sons of God, we desire to follow your Spirit. We desire to follow your Spirit into all truth, O oh God. We, wanna, we don't want to pick and choose from the Bible. We want to submit ourselves to, the, to all the commandments of God. We want to submit ourselves to your wisdom. We want to walk in truth and revelation, Lord. So, Father, I break off that postmodern spirit from the hearts and minds of your people here. And I speak forth the spirit of sonship unto them. Spirit of sonship unto each and every one. That they may be led into all truth. That they may be surrounded by intimacy and safety. Mercy and goodness all the days of their life. Yes, Father. I bless them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.